Well, here we go again. Welcome to the Cloister Bell podcast presented by Rob and Liam. Today we begin looking at Tom Baker's first series of Doctor Who, naturally starting at the beginning with his debut story, Season 12's four-part adventure, Robot, which was originally broadcast 18th of December 1974 to the 28th of January 1975. This cloister bell. Imminent disaster. The cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh no. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Liam and I'm joined by Rob. Hello Rob. Hello everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you? Good thanks. Um, it hasn't been long since we last recorded, actually. Our schedules are tightening up a bit. Yeah, so we're... Uh, back we're again. D- yeah, we're doing quite well, actually. Um, so, uh, long may it continue. Yeah. My wife was like, what do you mean you're recording again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, um, hopefully, uh, keeping on, uh, keep on track of the schedule and, um... Keep that momentum going. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, big, big change now, we're... Back to the classic era, after mm-hmm, a, little, yeah. a little break in the modern era. Um, past two weeks, we revisited two Capaldi stories, mm-hmm. Flatline and Listen. So it was good checking those out. Yes, it was, and obviously we we intended to go back to the the new era at uh, at some point. But um, the reason why we're going back to the the, the classic is Season 12 was released on Blu-ray box set, limited edition, back in 2018. Um, But now uh, it's going to get a standard re-release. It'll be exactly the same content as what was in the limited edition box set. It's just that the, the, the box that houses everything is just slightly different, but everything else remains the same. Um, and that gets a release on... Uh, the end of May, I think. The th- uh, yeah, ne- next week, I believe. Yeah. Y- yes, at the time of recording, next week. So we thought it was a perfect opportunity to uh, to cash in, <laughs> as it were, uh, yeah. and take a look at that entire season. Um, but before we, we get on to that, uh, just a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, one of them concerns a, a slight change to the podcast I think nothing major but when Rob and I um, do our main review we then do a, um, a summing up and then a ranking and we've done our rankings out of 10 and we both agreed that it, it became something that we were quite uncomfortable doing we, we found it quite tricky and to quantify our thoughts on a story um, can be a little bit tricky and also on, re- on a rare occasion I think it did work and we were uh we both kind of agreed on a certain amount out of 10 but mm-hmm. but you're right we're we keep scoring things in the same kind of threshold and for different reasons and it is becoming tricky yes it is yeah and um and sometimes i mean i don't know how you felt rob but when after we'd reviewed something and then just to uh stick a number on it i felt sometimes well yeah it feels right as a ranking but then it feels like we've slightly contradicted how we've reviewed what's gone on before and the two don't marry up and then it was becoming a bit of a headache because i was thinking well 
uh, I've ranked such and such a story the same ranking. Does it equally compare and mm-hmm. and all the rest of it? I just thought it was becoming a bit of a problem. And uh, so anyway, we've agreed on a much more simpler format. We will still be ranking them, but it's much more straightforward. We will simply be saying at the end whether we think the story is good, average or okay, or just simply bad. Um, and I think that's something that we just feel a lot more comfortable with. Totally, um, yeah. So with that podcast, uh, with this podcast, sorry, going forward, that's the the new ranking system that, that we'll have. Um, I just think it'll be a, a lot more yeah. fair and a lot more easier. Uh, a lot t- easier. I think I'd be able to say with absolute certainty mm-hmm. how I'd rank it. Otherwise, the plucking a number out of ten, yeah, it's a bit tricky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is because out of uh, out of the two of us, you are the one who's much more familiar with Big Finish than I am. Um, not uh, as much as most people out there. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, you, you, uh, you, um, I mean, I've in comparison, I've only listened to sort of like a handful of adventures, and I, I do enjoy them. Um, but I think I'm because this goes back to when uh, Big Finish first started back in 1999 with with the audio adventures. Um, because we, I mean, we were still kids. And I think I've said this in a, in a previous podcast at some point, but it was sort of, um, you had a choice, which was um, if you wanted to spend your pocket money on something, you know, you, you know, goes back into the thing, you know, we, we, we come from impoverished backgrounds. And um, <laughs> um, so growing up, it was sort of, well, do you get the big finish all your adventures? Or, uh, and I thought actually at the time that they could be a bit expensive. Or get the books I went for the BBC books but uh, I think you went for the big Finnish audios and as a result mm-hmm. you sort of um, became more familiar with them that's right time. yeah I, I did the occasional subscription to the monthly range mm-hmm. and that would be it's a lot of money it's over a hundred pound you'd spend on um, 12 CDs or so mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's yeah, even as an adult now um, a working adult it's 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 I can't afford to to do that. <laughs> it's, it's no, such no. A big, uh, um, it's a but then, thing. and then there's the other thing because they've got because uh, a couple of podcasts ago we even mentioned because it's it's only been fairly recently that Big Finish has entered the Guinness Book of Records for providing the um, the longest running audio science fiction series in the world, which of course it's its Doctor Who output. The output is huge, and actually, at this point, entering wanting to listen to Big Finish can be quite daunting. Um, but I think there's an element of you've just really got to sort of throw yourself into it a little bit. Anyway, the reason why I mention this is because I've um, I have listened to Big Finish Audio Adventures, of course. But I thought um, I want to get a bit more into it. And actually, us reviewing Robot today has has sort of given me an opportunity to 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 listen to Big Finish um, a little bit more. Are you aware of the Sarah Jane Smith series? Yeah, there was two series produced mm-hmm. with Elizabeth Sladen. I believe it may have been 2004 to 2006. Uh, yes, I think so. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure on the dates, but that does sound yeah, about right. And I think it was about four, uh, eight stories altogether, I think. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so anyway, uh, I decided to buy that when I bought it, and I've listened to the first series. Uh, have you listened to any of them? Uh, no, um, I haven't. I've listened to clips of them, but I'm, I'm aware of them. Oh, okay. Well, I recommend them. The reason that sort of spurred me on 
I won't go too much into it if you if you intend to listen to it, uh, listen to them, because they're, they're individual stories. But there is a little bit of a thread which sort of builds up as the first series goes along. Um, and actually, uh, Patricia Maynard uh, comes up in that series and reprises her role as Miss Winters. Oh, right, okay. Uh, uh, and it's I I abs- so, so I listen as I said I've listened to the first series and I absolutely it's fantastic. So it's Sarah Jane Smith being a journalist. It's her doing her investigations. Um, across these adventures, they can be uh, taken separately. Uh, but as I said, there is a there is a um, a little bit of a thread which which builds up to the final story. Um, but they have done it in a way where you can enjoy them individually. Uh, they're incredibly atmospheric. Uh, some of them are really quite creepy, uh, but in a good way. And I found I found the adventures just really really great to listen to. So um, I recommend uh, the Sarah Jane Smith series. Uh, I'm looking forward to starting the second one. I'm wondering how do you think in tone it compares to the Sarah Jane Adventures TV show because um, <clears throat> sorry because the Big Finish series of Sarah Jane Adventures ended abruptly in 2006 um, in favour of the TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, do you th- how do you how would you compare them in tone? They are uh, they are quite different. The Sarah Jane uh, Adventures, the the TV series, is is quite clearly aimed at a much younger audience, so it, it's a bit more light hearted in comparison. I mean that is, I mean I, I'm not that familiar with the TV series, but I have obviously seen uh, one or two episodes, uh, and sometimes like um, is it the Trickster? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually think you know for for uh, a young children's tv series that's actually quite a, a scary design so it could be quite uh, creepy but it has a it has a much more light-hearted approach i mean certainly compared to the, the main series of which is a spin-off which is doctor who um whereas the big finish audio adventures it's it's a lot more um mature it is a lot more atmospheric there are moments which are generally really creepy and you've got um some really underhanded villains and just um some characters just through the audio performance just exude evil mm-hmm. um and and also because it's sarah jane smith as a journalist in this series so she's you know she's doing her investigation um so it it is it is a lot more mature than the the sarah jane smith adventures right that's interesting. I don't know what the reference is, but some elements of the CDs did get referenced in the TV show. Ah, right, okay. Uh, so you could, you, um, there's a connection there where you could regard the CDs as, as canon, if, if you like. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd certainly love to, because I love the stories, and I've, I've certainly enjoyed the... As I said, I've only listened to the first series uh, at the time of recording. Um but it was great, and I love the team of characters because it's Sarah, and she's got you know a, a couple of friends. The main one being a character called Josh, um, and he's just he you know he's just a brilliant character, and I, I love the the actors and, and everything. It's a very good series, and I, I got into that. So um, that's made me want to uh, explore Big Finish. Not not that I didn't want to, but I think it's um, it's it's made made it a bit more easier. Because I've made a sort of a, a bit of a leap, and I've really enjoyed yeah. those stories. Yeah, in whatever ways it's inaccessible, it just becomes more inaccessible <laughs> the more content they release. <laughs> unfortunately, but um, as they themselves say, the best way to 
to get into it is just pick a story that you think you like and just go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, funny enough, uh, because after I bought this, I came across um, a YouTube channel, and it was uh, it was just random, and th- th- I think there was a video clip from a couple of years ago. He, he uh, I think it's called Council of Geeks, and they um, and they do an awful lot of uh, of Doctor Who output. And there was a video where they were talking about um, uh, Big Finish and was coming from that point of view of going, there's an awful lot of stuff there. It can be incredibly daunting. What do you do? And they recommended four stories, which um, I can't remember all of them, but one of them was Jubilee. One was Spare Parts. And there was a couple of others. Just as a mean, I think one was the Fearmonger actually, um, and that was a means of like getting you into the series, getting you used to listen to an audio adventure, and then from that point on, just throw yourself into it. Yeah, because well, they they are, they... they are great standalone stories from the first from the first fifty range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was the point that they were making. You're saying that really because these are standalone, you don't have to, um, you know, start from the very beginning and work your way through. In fact, if you were to do that. Um, which I think was my original intention, actually, but it's a bit OCD. And it said um, that can actually burn you out. It's not the right way to just uh, pick a venture which you think you like and just go with it. Totally. Um, yep, there's that. So, um, just our social media information. Um, we're available at Podcast Bell. Uh, please get in contact uh, us there. That's where most of our listeners. You know, uh, drop comments, provide responses to the stories that we're reviewing, etc. We do love hearing from you. We're also on Instagram at cloister underscore bell. Uh, our website is cloisterbellpodcast.com. Everything regards to the podcast can obviously be found there. There's a few fun bits and pieces as well. Uh, there's a couple of quizzes, there's word searches as, uh, as well, which are quite good fun. And if you enjoy the podcast and uh, would like to support us, we would be extremely grateful and you would be able to do so through Patreon. Um, the link is on our website, but you can also find us uh, via the Patreon website as well. Um, before we crack on with Robot, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, Rob? Um, no, I haven't been doing much this week. Uh, I've caught a few bits more of Grey's Anatomy that my wife's been working through. Um, this evening on an episode, Eric Roberts came into it. Ah, right, okay. So I've, I've, I've just got a little uh, keen eye for any um, any connections to Doctor Who there in <laughs> yeah, anything yeah. that I watch. <laughs> But so he wasn't uh, evil in that. They didn't blow him up, and yeah. <laughs> oh, and he didn't pick his fingernails off or anything like that. Did no, he? no, he didn't. Oh, no. shame. Are you, I, I take it. Uh, are you enjoy watching it. Uh, yeah, it. I think, uh, almost comparing it to how you talked about Big Finish there, how it can almost burn you out. Because uh, I think we're, I think we're on season thirteen now, and. It's only it's it's on its eighteenth or eighteenth or nineteenth season now, and it's a lot of drama, a lot of death, a lot of loss. It's quite heavy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It so many like you, the characters are dead well. now, so and they just get replaced. So it's it's a it's a hard one to keep up with. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, any intention to have a break soon? Um. Yeah, well, once she's worked her way through it all, <laughs> <laughs> all right. get get back to watching other things. 
Anything immediately uh, on the cards, or...? Uh, oh, hmm. Uh, anything on my watch list? No. Uh, oh, one thing I was doing this week, I was trying to do my list of all-time favourite films. Ah, okay. Uh, so, so, I just started throwing some movies in there. Then I went through series of movies and started putting them in. And then I went to the bottom and started removing things and <laughs> moving things around. So uh, I'll tell you more about that if I can uh, kind of balance that list out and make it an, an accurate representation of what I like. But uh, yeah, that's been fun. <laughs> I know. I look forward to it. Yeah. Um, let me know what uh, um, your final your final list or the, at least the top ten or something. Uh, be interested to see what uh, what pops up. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's great. Um, but without much further ado, let's uh, let's go on to the main thing, which is a robot. So a quick plot synopsis. The newly regenerated Doctor helps the Brigadier and Unit battle a sentient robot being manipulated by a corrupt scientific organisation who see it as their right to rule the world and shape it as they see fit, and they will stop at nothing to see their plans come to fruition. So the cast and crew... Tom Baker making his debut as the Doctor, Elizabeth Sladen playing Sarah Jane Smith, Ian Martyr plays Harry Sullivan, Nicholas Courtney plays Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, John Levine plays Sergeant Benton, Patricia Maynard plays Miss Winters, Michael Kilgariff plays Ro- the Robot, Edward Burnham, uh, who had appeared in the Patrick Trotman story The Invasion, uh, plays Professor Kettlewell. I used to I- think his name was Kettlebell, you know, <laughs> the wait. <laughs> Oh, I wish it was now, Professor Kettlebell. Uh, And Alec Linstead plays Jellicoe. The story was written by Terence Dix. The script editor was Robert Holmes. The story was directed by Christopher Barry. This was the final story to to be produced by Barry Letts. The music was by Dudley Simpson. The costume design by Jim Ageson. And the production design was by Ian Rosley. Um, Am I right in thinking, Rob, that with the exception of... um, Jodie Whittaker, this is the first story on the podcast that we're reviewing uh, an introductory story to a new Doctor. Uh, I believe so. Um, let's have a, have a little thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's uh, It's been a long time coming, actually, when you think about it. Uh, so it's, uh, it's quite good. So um, the story really hits the ground running. So the, the Doctor regenerates in front of the Brigadier and Sarah... And as we know, Tom Baker plays the fourth Doctor, so this is the third time we've seen a regeneration. And, and so far in the series, we'd had, um, oh, the Doctor's physically changed. Is it a bit weird? Is he a Doctor? Isn't he? Do we trust him or not? Then we had the, um, I don't recognise you. Are, are you sure you're the Doctor? And the, the slow build-up of trust, which was in Spearhead from Space. And then, but, the, with, but with this story, we have the Doctor regenerate in front of the Brigadier and Sarah, and he's therefore accepted straight away. Which is allow, which allows us to go straight into the actual story, and as I said, yeah. that's a, that's a contrast to Spearhead from Space, um, and I'm pleased they did that. I mean, um, Terence Dix, who wrote the story, um, I mean, he'd been involved in script editing the show since 1968, and he'd been script editor for the entire John Pertwee era. Um, now he stepped down. Robert Holmes was his replacement, but this was his first freelance job since leaving um, the script editor role. And he said that that was a deliberate decision. He didn't want to have the, you're not the doctor. He just said, that'd be boring. Um, let's just get straight into it. 
And, uh, and on that on that note, can we mention his performance? Because he really does play the fourth Doctor mm-hmm. from the off. Like, if you got someone who wasn't familiar with Robot and you sat them down and just showed them, I don't know, episode four, mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't be able to tell that it was the debut story. Yeah, I agree with that. He, he really does... Um, a few of the little hallmarks are there of his character, um, and he really kind of kind of fits in and nails it. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, he would he would improve the role and build you know, certain nuances as, as the as his time would go on. That that you know that's understandable, and you would expect that. But yeah, I totally agree. He hits the ground running. It's abs- it's absolutely impressive. Um. How Tom Baker just his performance of the Doctor just seems fully formed from the off, um, and in that respect, it's everything to do with uh, introducing this new Doctor from from the writing to Tom Baker's performance just allows that uh, because the you know, the Doctor is immediately on the ball, um, pretty much from from the moment he realizes that they they need to investigate. Uh, what the brigadier is looking into, because plans for a new disintegrator gun have have disappeared. Guards have been killed as a, as a result. It's all a bit mysterious. So he needs the doctor to help with the investigation, and the doctor is just straight in there, and he's noticing things like um, a squashed dandelion. And it's interesting with that scene, um, the because the doctor's just newly regenerated. He's a bit sort of scatterbrained. Um, uh, Harry Sullivan and the Brigadier think he's just why are you so bothered about the dandelion but then the Doctor explains um, it's clearly been squashed by something that weighs over over a ton and then they look at each other going oh right okay he this is he isn't being distracted by just wild man and things he's you know he's um, he's on the ball uh, and then the fact that he knows all about the disintegrator gun in the first place uh, you know shows the he was privy to, to to data anyway, but yeah, but it goes back into so you've got that from the writing perspective, but then from from Tom Baker, his actual performance, yeah, he really hits the ground running. It's really impressive. Uh, yeah, and the same couldn't be said for John Pertwee initially, because of course he had this whole downtime of uh, being bedridden and and all sorts and. Mm-hmm. Um, who else was kind of out of character? Mm. Of course, Colin Baker was initially. Mm-hmm. Um, McGann had, um, took a while to kind of figure out who he was. Um, of the new era doctors, uh, David Tennant was bedridden. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Smith had a uh, whole episode kind of coming to terms with himself. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting so, uh, with that comparison that you're making, because when you think about it, when the show came back in 2005 and you had a full series with Christopher Eccleston and then he leaves at the end of it and then you're introducing a new Doctor uh, that early on, you're already introducing a huge change in a show that you're just wanting, you know, has just been established. Um, so what uh, Russell T. Davis did, I think, for that to mitigate against it was he he introduced this change again by focusing on Rose and her family. In terms of introducing a new Doctor, it's not until really the last quarter of that episode where David Tennant, you know, rocks up, T helped him, and, 
you know, that, that's quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed the episode and they do it quite well, but it's a, it's it's an interesting way of going about it. Whereas going back here, uh, you would think, you know, because with modern television and certainly New Doctor Who has a much uh, faster pace of having to do things. Whereas the classic series, because of the way that television was made back then, it uh, and in comparison to, to modern television, the pace is slower. Um, yes. But but nonetheless, you know what Terence Sticks has done with this story uh, and with this episode broadcast at the end of 1974, it's actually a lot more quicker at introducing the new Doctor. He's there. Uh, there's some humour and, and quirkiness in doing that, but then he's straight into investigating what uh, what's going on. The Doctor, Sarah, Harry, Benton, they just accept he's the Doctor and they just go along with it. And so as a result of that, it's it's really very quick. Um, and in fact, the whole story is, is paced like that with actors responding, I think, very well to the structure of the story. And they themselves are bursting with energy and not once do they give a slow-paced performance. Yeah, their pace is, uh, their performance is paced. And and they're playing the, the the scenes as is intended, but nonetheless, you know, there's a huge energy that just seems to to run through every scene, mm-hmm. and uh, humour as well. Yeah, yeah, there's an awful lot. So I think um, the scene between the Doctor and Harry, um, when they're really um, talking to each other for the first time, and the Doctor's you know um, burbling about his ears and that slight dig at John Pertwee about how his nose is a definite improvement, and then uh, ending with the with the skipping. Um, the way that Tom Baker and Ian Marta play that scene is, it, wow, that's uh, t- two actors um, responding very incredibly well with one another, and, and it just seems to like just spark off. And to go from that to the skipping, mm. it's all one shot. There's no, there's no cuts. No, no, there isn't. Yeah, and that, yeah, exactly. That's another point as well, uh, and this goes into the way that television was made in those days, you, the, the scenes were, although everything was recorded, they were played pretty much as live, uh, which was, uh, could be a strength to the story could, uh, or to the production or could be a detriment. In this case, it's a definite plus that it allows things to, to flow incredibly well. And in fact, Elizabeth Sladen, when, um, w- when she was interviewed or, uh, talking about this story, um, she saw how Ian Martyr and Tom Baker were um, responding to each other as actors. And it was this specific scene where she was watching it and she was going, blimey. Uh, she was thinking that she really needed to up her game as an actress mm-hmm. because of the way that they were performing uh, against each other. Um, uh, and, and also the other point, which is you mentioned as well, because there's a great deal of humour and wit in this story. And I, there are really great lines when... One of my favourites is when um, the do- uh, the doctor's not in, n- not too sure who the brigadier is, and he's going, "Are you Alexander the Great or are you Hannibal?" <laughs> you know these great soldiers and commanders of antiquity, and he's going, "Oh no, you're the brigadier." I just quite like that. I just think it's quite witty. Yes. And then you've got the the costume change. Oh, the the Vikings, my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> The camera just pans over. <laughs> yeah, because initially you just see Nicholas Courtney's uh, reaction as the brigadier just looking shocked and then, just, and then you just cut. And it is generally funny. And apparently all that, all this bit was Tom Baker's idea. 
Uh, and Christopher Barry, who was the director, went, yep, let, let's do it. It's a good idea. And so already um, Tom Baker is, you know, making suggestions which are impacting um, the story. Uh, and, you know, he's bringing that humor in. And it's great. And yeah, he's, you know, and that, that, I love all that dialogue. It just, you know, Brigadier going, UNIT is supposed to be a top secret organization. Do you think I might track detention? It's just possible. Um, I love all that. It just puts a big smile on my face. I generally laugh at that scene. And then, uh, and then he goes out and then he comes dressed as the King of Hearts. <laughs> <laughs> and then a clown. Uh, and then before finally setting on the, you know, the icon that is, you know, the long star, the uh, long scarf costume that we all know and love. Um, I, mean, I mean, do you want to talk about the costume? The final costume? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you, you don't really have... The whole episode lets you acclimatise to it. It's just so sudden. It's like, yep, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> let's get a move on. Um, so, it, it's, a, it's a lot to take in in an instant. Mm-hmm. Um but it it definitely fits. I uh, I don't know. You got any thoughts on that? No, no. I think um, well, one of the things that the, which I think is interesting because uh, because it is such. Um, uh, it, I mean, I suppose it's one of those things that we would perhaps take for granted now because it is such. Uh, you know, it is iconic. Um, of all the all the Doctor's costumes, and there are many. Um, you know, I think the one even now, even with the new Doctor Who having been, you know, well established, and uh, with with fans of the show uh, becoming fans because of the new series, I think not all, of course, but I think still for the vast majority of people, it's the long scarf, and as is the definitive iconic costume of a Doctor. And uh, it might not have worked. I mean, mm-hmm. you talk about the modern era; it just to kind of play it safe. Yeah, because you've either got a nice suit or a t-shirt and a jacket, um, nothing too elaborate. It might be um, more of a kind of period style or or something really fancy, but it's never. It doesn't really push the boundaries into something um, something bizarre. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, um, on the, I think it's definitely in the season eighteen. Uh, box set um i think it might be on the warriors gate dvd but uh there's a there's a special feature where they're talking about lala ward who played romana and romana's costumes and um they have a costume designer from from new doctor who is actually during the david tennant era and she's talking about you know the various costumes that uh were designed for for lala ward to to wear while she was in the show and she made an interesting point which was that um she was designing all these costumes for the doctor and primarily for for rose and she said the one response that she she got from an awful lot of people with the costumes she designed was the costume for um i've forgotten the name of the episode but it's the one where it's set in the 1950s and it's got maureen lipman in and um Oh, the idiot's lantern—that's what's called. Mm. Um, and she said that's the the one costume that everyone responded to because it was distinctive. And she said, whereas with everything else she's designed, she probably won't be remembered. Whereas everyone will look back at the costumes that were designed for for the likes of classic Doctor Who, because they are iconic 
and they are memorable and they do and i think that is interesting and yeah um i think they they were willing they were willing to take risks sometimes they didn't pay off um but i mean for the most case for the most part they did and this certainly works and it's great but they it but um they do have to uh, what is interesting with the story is that they do have to, you know, uh, they do use the scarf as a prop, and the hat, and the hat, yeah, as as a means of um, explaining why the Doctor would perhaps want this, you know. So he uses it um, because at one point the um, there's a huge hole, and the Doctor uses it as a means to measure the depth of the hole. Later on, he's he's got a magnet tied up as uh, dragging it along the floor to to find bits and pieces of. Um, uh, electronic equipment so you know it's it, not only as a, as, a, as a costume but they have to explain sort of why why he would dress in such a way by also using uh the scarf as a prop as well yeah and as a weapon he uses it to pull uh knock someone over yes he does yeah yeah in the final episode yeah. uh letting them walk on the scarf and then making them trip yeah. and fall um but yeah it's um so it's interesting yeah because it, it was quite daring but they they, I mean, as I said before, we we take it for granted because it is so iconic. But they do, they do explain um, why the Doctor would perhaps wear something like that uh, as a means of letting us, the audience, get used to such a um, a, dis- a distinctive look. Um, one of the things that I I also think is very good talking about design is actually the design of the story. I think uh, the production design, which, as I said before, was by Ian Rosley, I think is is very good. These feel like real places. Um, there's an awful lot of location footage in, in this story, which is impressive. Um, but with the with the moments when they're in the studio, I, I think actually this, the set designs are really good. You know, you've got the unit laboratory, you've got Professor Kettlewell's laboratory, uh, both the abandoned one at the um, at the think tank, and the one that he's currently residing in, and obviously there are other sets as well. And I think they're really designed. They feel like, they feel and look like real places, and I think that's really uh, helped enormously by the lighting seen throughout this story. Well, I was just going to say that in comparison with Spearhead from Space, with the unit lab, mm. um, the lighting feels a lot better. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with, with Spearhead from Space because... Um, there was a there was a strike at the BBC and th- they didn't have the means of uh, using um, the the BBC studios, so they were forced to go on location and shoot the whole thing on film, uh, which is what they did. So there was no everything was location on Spearhead from Space, um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's interesting, despite being in real locations in in Spearhead here with the studio. I think the lighting does make a huge difference. I mean, the lighting is provided by Nigel Wright and John Mason, and it's excellent. It's atmospheric when it needs to be, but it's also realistic when it needs to be. The, the lighting in Kettlewell's abandoned laboratory is very atmospheric and lends itself to some very good scenes where um, between um, Sarah, Jellicoe and Miss Winters, and then later with Miss Winters, Jellicoe and the Doctor and the Brigadier. Um because there's machinations going on, there's elements of plot being revealed, and we're aware that something sinister is going on, and we're getting that with the performance and and the lighting. Um, and then later on, for example, in Kettlewell's current residence, that is balanced with what looks like natural light. Um, 
which can be quite tricky to pull off. And I've got to say, I'm really impressed with the overall look of this story. Um, uh, so that's another thing that I, re- I, I really appreciate about, about it. I think it's really, I think it's really strong. Um, yeah, um, and the location stuff is really good. Um, there's a heavy unit presence. In fact, we have a lot of manpower in in a single shot at, 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 any, at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a shame, obviously, some of the effect shots do let the story down. That we'll get on to later. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But um, I think they come a little bit later on in the story. I, th- I mean, certainly for the most part, I think um, episodes one and two are arguably when the story is at its best. For all the elements that we've talked about um, up until now, except what we haven't mentioned is the cast. The cast, without exception, is superb. Um, but I do have I do have one person who's a highlight for me. Is that... Uh, is that is there anyone who stands out for you in this story in terms of the actors? Um, not not stands out more than any any other. Obviously, you've got the core cast, mm-hmm. um, but the extras. I don't know. Um, Kettlewell has this crazy hairdo, makes him stand out a lot. <laughs> um, mm. Of course, the robot himself is an interesting character. Yes, he is. Um... And actually, one thing I, di- I didn't cover when we were talking about the design, uh, and I should have because it, it, it's obvious, is the actual design of the robot. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It's it's in no way a typical design or what you'd expect. Uh, anatomically, it's a man, uh, but it's very intricate and almost alien. Mm-hmm. If you were to, um, if you were to just get a pen and paper. Or some cardboard boxes design a robot. Um, it would not look like that. Um, it's parts of it are almost um, organic, like the shoulders. the The head is very unique. Mm-hmm. The way it moves, it, of course, it, it's very slow but very heavy. Um, so yeah, the design of it is unique, and it's hard to compare it to anything else I've seen. Apart from some, um, uh, maybe some kind of sci-fi robots from the earlier decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's very much its own thing. It's it's um, it, designed by James Aitchison. It's um, it it is iconic, and it is. It, I agree with you. It stands up in its own own merits. It's it's sort of un- incomparable to anything else. I mean, if you compare it to, I mean, you've got the the famous robot from. Um, the movie Metropolis. Um, you've got Robbie the Robot, um, which is a, you know a superb design um, from Forbidden Planet, and then you've got this, and it, it's um, I think it's it's a great design. I, I would say that especially when and and Christopher Barry does a really good job with the direction because the, there are great moments where you know the camera is clearly up on a crane looking down. Um, so you, you you get a sense of the the height of the robot from there. There are obviously low angle shots as well to to emphasise it. Um, I think the I think the robot works far more effectively when um, you're seeing it from from the chest up when it's moving mm. around. I do think it is a little bit of a limitation when you're seeing it sort of walking around a little bit, but not actually surprisingly not too much. 
Um, but I do think it's a great design. Um, and uh, Michael Kilgariff, who who uh, plays the character, because it's it, it's it's also him as an actor. Not only not only is he in the costume, uh, but he's the one who's also providing the voice. So he's mm. providing a full performance of it. Um, and obviously, the voice is sli- uh, voice is slightly uh, modulated to give it a, a mechanic um, mechanical sound. But not only does the design help with this idea that um, this this thing is something that you can emote to uh, whilst it's still being a robot, uh, Michael Kilgariff's vocal performance certainly helps with that. Yeah, there's a there's almost an emotion behind there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting character because it, in contrast with the humans, uh, this robot it doesn't lie, and it's got this this set of fundamentals which are his prime directives, mm-hmm. um, and that's corrupted um, by by the humans. Um, so, in a way, the robot is quite innocent. And just following, um, yeah, his own directives. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, but you you've got that 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 conflict that comes through, and that there are moments where, I mean, it's great. Elizabeth Sladen also plays these parts incredibly well because you know she, she th- you know she's emoting uh, to the, this robot. Um, but it's actually quite uh, emotional watching it. I mean, I, d- I don't want to suggest that you know watching it made me want to, to burst into tears, but um, seeing the robot clearly conflicted and in pain um does elicit emo- an emotional response um so i can uh th- there's empathy there and so when, when when i'm watching it i'm not i'm not questioning the fact that you know um sarah um develops a relationship with this character i'm not watching it thinking this is clearly ridiculous i totally buy it i'm able to suspend my disbelief very easily yeah, but it, yeah, it's good she has compassion and the robot identifies that she has empathy because she recognised the conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting relationship with the robot and Sarah. Um, you can make comparisons, of course, to like King Kong. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, that is, that is the obvious... Um, comparison, especially. I mean, we'll we'll come on to this, but especially when you get into the <laughs> into the fourth episode, um, because I think up until that point, you could go, oh, there might be there might be some similarities to King Kong here, and then you watch episode four, and go, there are definitely yeah. similarities to King Kong here, but you know, there's <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but actually, talking about Sarah, because the Doctor is pushing the the narrative along through his through his investigations and then him being on the ball and then prompting the brigadier, you know, um, what's likely to happen and so on. But actually Sarah's really pushing the narrative as well because um, not only with the emotional bond that she forms with the robot, which is what we are just talking about, but the fact that she uses her own initiative by investigating, you know, we're, we're reminded she is a journalist and, you know, she, she goes out and do, uh, to do you know, to, she's, journalisting um in the story for for want of an actual word um a good example of this i mean she's the one who goes out and uh, investigates the scientific reform society the srs you know she goes out and uses her initiative to do that um by interviewing mr short 
and then getting a hint of sort of what the SRS are, are all about. Um, yes. So I think ter- it, it, earlier on with Think Tank as well, she mm. uh, she kind of goes back and sneaks in and she finds the oil. Yes, which then prompts her to to see the robot for the first time, and then and then is able to f- through that information inform the brigadier and the doctor that actually this um, the the people that they're looking for is likely to come from from the think tank. So Terrastix has, has written a very um, a very well balanced uh, script where you know th- uh, we're introduced to the doctor and he. You know we're we're able to put our full faith in him um, because he's clearly very intelligent and uh, is able to to cotton on to things very quickly. But then at the same time, you know, but he's not the one who's in completely dominating the story. It's it's balanced, and, and Sarah's taking a, a a big a big role in that as well. And it's like what I said. I think episodes one and two are when um, how the story is written and how it's executed is when the story is at its its best. Uh, I think the execution in the first two episodes are very, very good. I think it's episode three, that's for me when the... F- that's the first time in the story where the perfect execution execution slips a bit. Um, I mean, before I go on to that, I mean, th- does that ring true to you? Does um, What happens in episode three? Um... Well, for for one thing, um, whenever I'm watching this story, because you know I've uh, I've watched it um, you know a few times uh, over the years, and I always enjoy it. Episode three is the one that I always find. I was like, oh no, this is the episode where it just it that perfect pace and execution slips a bit. So, for example, the recap from the previous episode is far too long. Um, you know, when when the doctor's in K- Kettlewell's laboratory. Uh, yeah, the whole scene. In fact, I did kind of fast forward through that through that a little bit. Yeah, yeah it's. Uh, I mean, it's a whole minute or two. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like two minutes. It's pretty much the whole final scene of uh, the the final scene of episode two is pretty much re- the whole thing's recapped. That's yeah, far and you're too thinking, long. hang on, this is this is only a twenty five minute episode. <laughs> it was just lost three minutes there. Yeah, and obviously the, the episode was underrunning quite a lot, but as a so that, that's what they had to do, but obviously as a viewer, it does it does sort of oh, for goodness sake, and it does feel sort of like because all what you really need is a quick recap if you were tuning in from the following week and going alright, oh, yeah, 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 that's right where we left off. Not play the whole scene, it's a, it's a bit of a shame. Um, but then that's immediately followed by the battle between the unit soldiers and the robot, and I don't think it's as tightly shot as it could have been. Um, and I think you know that's quite um, slowly paced as well. I think mm. tighter shots um, and a bit more um, fast-paced editing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I think would have you know sold it a bit more. And unfortunately, it's not. That's not the only instance in this episode because later on there's a shootout uh, at the meeting hall. Um, so the SRS have have had this meeting and the, the Brigadier and everyone infiltrates it and um, Jellicoe, Miss Winters, the robot, with Sarah as uh, as a hostage, escaping, and um, that really, you know, it's sort of one of those instances where the story where it's it's a sh- I can't. F- I feel like I can't suspend my disbelief. I'm just sort of watching a bit and just going, oh, that's such a shame. You've got all these soldiers shooting around. Not hitting anything, so they appear useless. Because this goes mm. on for a good 
minute and minute two minutes. Um, you're wondering how come Jellico isn't shot. The 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 robot is having to be guided down some stairs. It's just a bit of a shame, and I wish that could have been shot a little bit better. Yes, I wonder if this whole scenario would have played out better without Unit, because they're very trigger happy, and like that scene what you mentioned in Kettlewell's um, Kettlewell's place where. She, is it yes, Sarah's there with the robot mm-hmm. and the soldiers come in and start shooting. Um and Sarah's pleaded for them not to. Yeah. Um but you know, the weapons don't seem to be effective. And then eventually you even have the brigadier using the laser on the on the robot. Mm-hmm. Um maybe they do more harm than good. <laughs> I wonder if the robot was not fired on. At any point in the story, I wonder if um, they perhaps could have reasoned with the robot. I think so, yeah, probably. I, th- I think very like Because um, the robot listens to, to Sarah. Because he's, uh, the robot, having been informed that the, the Doctor is, a, is an enemy to, hum- uh, to mankind, is about to kill the Doctor. Sarah comes in, uh, tells him that's not the case, and that he's been lied to. He actually listens to her. Uh, but of course, everything just uh, he he goes off on a sort of like stomping killing ground thing uh, because yeah, the unit soldiers have have shot at him. So yeah, uh, <laughs> very likely. Um, and then I think probably uh, one of the most infamous, weakest moments of the story is actually the cliffhanger to episode three, uh, where the robot is threatened by a toy tank. Yeah. And I'm guessing none of this has been replaced for the Blu-ray. Uh, no, no, it hasn't. No. <laughs> um, now, Christopher Barry, uh, the director, he wanted a real tank. Of course he did. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And they could have actually got it. But Barry Letts being producer went, no, 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 it's fine. We, we can actually save costs and this shot will actually work perfectly fine if with a toy tank. Um, so it's just, okay. Uh, so they do this shot. Uh Barry Letts did later say that that was a mistake. Um, and it is a <laughs> it is a shame because, I mean, obviously, you know what they're trying to do. They're trying to have a sense of fo- fo- uh, like a false perspective with the, the toy tank in the foreground trying to look absolutely massive with the robot in the background then shooting it with a disintegrator gun. Um, but you can tell that it's a toy. Yes, mm. they've slowed the footage down and everything, but... It's hampered by the fact that you can see the ground quite clearly and the fact that there's a little bit of a border fence next to the lawn that they're shooting it next to. The whole thing gives the game away and it's just, it's a bit of a shame. Yeah, it's unfortunate. There's lots of instances like this in TV and movies where having a camera locked off and having something at a different perspective or even just kind of a matte painting with a locked off camera um, where the the trick kind of um doesn't even get your attention like um you don't have to suspend your disbelief and it looks looks natural mm-hmm. um, that's, um that's unfortunate <laughs> but or, or is it just one of the one of the highlights of the story <laughs> <laughs> it, it gives the story its charm um i mean the thing is when i first watched the story when i was a child um i completely bought it so, but keeping in mind, you know, um, in those days I was watching it on a, a much smaller television screen than now. 
Um, plus, you know, <laughs> being a kid, probably stupid. But watching it now, it's just you can't help it. It is a bit of a shame. But despite all this, there are some. There's still some good stuff in episode three. So, um, Kettlewell. Um, I've forgotten the ch- yes, Edward Burnham, who plays the character. Um, you know, he gave him the look of this this you know the, the eccentric uh, scientist with all the hair standing on end. <laughs> Do you remember Mr. Milne? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's him. <laughs> For listeners who are completely perplexed, um, when we were in secondary school, there was a teacher called Mr. Milne. Um, not as eccentric as Kettlewell uh, in his appearance with regards to his hair, but, you know, pretty damn close, I think. <laughs> anyway, um, so despite this eccentric appearance of, of Professor Kettlewell, uh, Edward Burnham has played the part really, really well. There you know the the, ex, the eccentric moments are, are there and nice to watch, but there are moments of um, sensitivity, and he's played the part very sympathetically, incredibly well. But then there's a surprise in episode three where actually he's a traitor. Uh, he's in league with the SRS, um, despite everything. And I mean, obviously, I'm well, aware the clues were there earlier because he did say no one else could. Um, tamper with the robot. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yes, the, the clues are there, and in fact, the, the the doctor later says says this. But at the same time, it's been so it it it's backed up in the writing. It's not just a shock for shock's sake. Terence Sticks has has written those clues in there. Um, but there are moments of slight subterfuge. Um, you know, the fact that he was found bound and hit over the head. Um, but of course, the doctor points out that that was that was fake to gain people's confidence. Um, yes. But it is a, it is um, it is a nice. I don't know whether twist is too strong a word of, of putting it across, but it, it it's a good story development. Um, and I actually, I, I think it's good that they didn't write him as um, being completely bad because he wasn't um, he wasn't in it for a nuclear war. No, no, he wasn't. Um, you know, he was doing it for the right mo- motives, misguided. But then, as the doctor says, like science as in morality, the ends never justify the means. And so he's as sort of he's conflicted as the robot is. And in fact, later, uh, in fact, earlier on in the story, the the uh, professor Kettlewell did say that he that he imbued his own creation with his own thoughts and morality. So you know, the robot reflects Kettlewell and vice versa. Um, which so, is so may- maybe. He transferred the, the same kind of conflict. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that's quite a nice, you know, um, you know, nice little bit of character writing in there. It's not in your face, but it's it's just there, and I think it's very nicely done. Um, but all this with Kettlewell being uh, a traitor, I think, is revealed in what I regard as the best scene in the entire story. Earlier on, when I asked, you know, is there any is there any any of the crew? Sorry, not any of the crew. Any of the cast. Um, who stand out for you? They're all fantastic, but for me, the real highlight is um, has got to be Patricia Maynard as Miss Winters. Um, I just think she is fantastic. Every scene she's in, I think she steals it, but not in a chew the scenery sort of way. I just think she gives a perfectly pitched, captivating performance. And uh, highlights of those are, you know, with her uh, between Miss Winters and Sarah in the abandoned lab. Um, which I mentioned earlier, and then um, um, 
and then and then here when she's at this SR, SRS meeting, um, sort of giving her um, sort of like a, uh, a Hitler-esque rant, really, um, you know, banging on about how um, they, the elite, uh, deserve to be in charge and how they want to put everything across on rational lines. And, you know, they're really, mm-hmm. you know, they're scientists, they're, um, they're technocrats, really. Um you know, you could see people like this operating for the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, and all the rest of it. But, um, just to get topical, but um, um, but I, I absolutely love that scene, and Patricia Maynard is just absolutely electrifying in it, and it uh, it really brings the the you know sort of the, the threat of of the episode into into focus. I really really like that scene, and it it just shows how good uh, Patricia Maynard is. Um, so, yeah. And it's yeah, it's scary what they were willing to go through with. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in contrast, we we do get to Genesis of the Daleks, which um, it's almost an aftermath to that kind of scenario. Yeah, and in fact, it's it's, it's interesting actually with with this series that um, with certainly with this story, certainly with Genesis of the Daleks, and it's sort of there and a little bit with the Ark in Space, where. Um, this idea of everything being focused on rational lines and uh, actually and 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 having scientists in charge is actually bad. It's certainly there in Genesis of the Dogs because it's obviously we'll we'll talk about that properly when we we get to reviewing it. But it's interesting that that Davros, uh, it, you know, and, and all that they're part of the scientific core. Um, you know, and and Winston Churchill he famously said, you know. Um, you should have scientists on tap, but not on top. They're good there to provide um, information, but don't let them be in charge because, you know, they rationalise everything and that's when things become a problem. Have them on mm-hmm. tap, but not on top. And that's sort of... I mean, I don't think it's a deliberate theme, but it's it's sort of there in this series of Doctor Who. And actually, with the, with the, the humans in the Ark in space, um, the Doctor comes along and gives them the imagination that they need in order to defeat the Wirren because prior to that, you know, they'd be, they'd all been compartmentalized and evaluated and everything and everyone had their place in society and they, they sort of, they were sort of like a, an ant colony and not humans. But anyway, mm. that, that's a discussion for another point. But yeah, it's it's interesting that um, the scientists are the villains here. And it's the idea of that, you know... Um, Yes, you've got extreme ideologies from the political spectrum, but they can also come from from other fields. Science being one of them, so it's um, it's interesting. Yeah, and as we'd learn near the end, um, there was a conflict between those two sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, um, one can use the other, but it can't always be symbiotic. Yes. Um, so. Despite the the seemingly simplistic, I mean, it, it is a straightforward story. But I think Terence Dixon has written it very skillfully. There's 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 there's, a, there's enough to to really enjoy and get your teeth into here. So even though I think episode three is the story at its weakest, there is still some really good stuff here. Um, but of course, this this builds up to, to episode four, and obviously this is when um, you know you you get the tension of Miss Winters preparing to, if she doesn't get her own way, to to have a nuclear war. And turn the turn the earth into um, uh, how does the doctor phrase it? Uh, a new uh, a, sus- uh, a burnt out cinder suspended in space or something like that. Um, so it's sort of it's either my way or the highway type thing. 
So you got that tension. But obviously we know that they're going to be defeated, but it's 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 very well done. Um and just when you think that things are going to be wrapped up in a seemingly simple way. Um no. Uh it's like what you said earlier. The brigadier uses the disintegrator gun on the robot, but rather than disintegrating the robot, it gives it the energy it needs because it's not made from any metal. It's sort of like a living metal. And it gives it the energy to grow. And so the robot becomes a giant robot. And this is when the story sort of, sort, sort of, <laughs> it, be, it clearly does. It becomes King Kong. Um, yes. I um, remember as a kid watching this, um, the concept of the, of the living metal. Um, I imagined if it was going to grow, it would just kind of organically grow or expand. Not like literally in ratio <laughs> to its original shape. Uh-huh. Um, just just uh, be enlarged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's huge, and um, it's it's a nice sort of um, further development of the story. Going, I didn't, wow, I didn't see this one coming. Because it's again, it's it's a great line. It's the brigadier saying, "I think, uh, I think for once, we're not going to need the doctor." And you think, yeah, you might actually have a good point. Um, but of course, no. Things don't work out that that straightforwardly. And I think actually that the battle between the unit soldiers and the giant robot in the final episode, I think is actually quite decent. Um, I think it's handled quite well. Mm. Um, what he should have done is shot at the robots, the, the ground beneath its feet. Mm. And just bur- buried it in a crater. That would have worked. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, you know, it, it wouldn't be classic Doctor Who without maybe a, a certain special shot you know, um, being bundled. And uh, the, the doll of Sarah Jane Smith is pretty funny. Oh, yeah. Don't look too closely at that. But, uh, I mean, if truth be told, I mean, I think the main problems that I had with regards to um, certain aspects we've already talked about, I think that the, it, it, those are on episode three at this point in the story because I'm back to just, like, really enjoying it all. And... Um, it's a shame that these things weren't sold particularly well, but I don't mind it too much if if I'm honest. Um, but of course, everything is resolved because the, the Doctor is, is able to find a virus which uh, which attacks um, uh, the metal that's made uh, that that makes up the robot. Uh, chucks it at the robot, and then uh, the robot slowly uh, shrinks and disintegrates. Yeah. Job done. Yeah. Doctor comes in yeah. with that bucket of the bubbling stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, you know, it's it's relatively simply done. I quite like it. It does the job, and and then um, and then we come to to wrapping the story up. Um, and I actually think um, everything's wrapped up really rather nicely. I, I like that moment between the Doctor and Sarah. Um, Sarah's office, uh, Sarah's still sad about the, the death of the robot, but the, the Doctor and, and Sarah have a, a bit of a heart to heart, and the Doctor shows that he understands where Sarah's coming from, and they have the regret over the death of the robot. Um, but he he does say that it was both good and evil, mm-hmm. and essentially human at the same time. Yeah, because of that, and it's uh, you know it's a it's a nice simple philosophical line, um, and it's great, and then it builds up to the fact of. Um, you know the, the doctor wanting to uh, to go off, traveling once more in the TARDIS, and it's just that great moment because it's 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 obvious symbolism, but I just I just like it and I love how uh, 
both Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen play it. When it's Sarah fully accepts the Doctor by um, eating a jelly baby he's offered and then just, you know, uh, stuffing her face and chewing away. It's it's just great. And it's just like, yeah, so Sarah accepts the Doctor, so should we. Um, it's just, just a nice moment. But that whole scene continues, you know, um, Harry comes in um, and that whole thing of finding the idea of the TARDIS ridiculous is just delightful. And I love his reaction at entering the TARDIS and it's just... Uh, oh, I say, you know, and the Doctor and Sarah finding that, ra- that you know, that rather amusing. There's something about the writing of that and the performance of it because it's so deftly done. There's something about it. I could see that being done in the new series mm. um, as well. Sort of, I could see that sort of that that same sort of thing being transported in the new series, and it would still work. I just, I just thought it was really delightful. Um, yeah, I wonder, was the intention always to have Ian Motter as a series regular? Yeah, it was. But what happened was um, they, they knew John Pertwee was going to be leaving the series, but they didn't know who they were going to cast and thought that their initial intention was to have an older actor, sort of akin to like a William Hartnell type doctor again. Um, and if that was the case, they would need a younger uh, a younger character to do all the sort of the action scenes and all the rest of it. So they wrote... The character of Harry Sullivan, uh, Barry Letts knew he want he, he wanted um, Ian Martyr to play the role, um, but then of course they cast Tom Baker, um, a much younger actor, and that's sort of one of the reasons why Ian Martyr certainly in this story doesn't have an awful lot to do, because the character was conceived when they had a different I- when they had a different idea of who the new Doctor would be. He, thankfully, he has better things to do later on. It's certainly in Genesis and Revenge and then in his final stories a regular in Terror of the Zygons. But um, yeah, but it was always intended for him to be a regular. That's interesting, yeah. And do you think Sarah initially wanted him to come? Uh, because she has a bit of apprehension about the Doctor showing him the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that as far as that goes? Uh, she... Do you think she didn't have any concerns about it? Well, funny enough, I've always read that because she's he sort of like she sort of tugs at his arm, going "Doctor," as if she's not. I mean, not hugely, but not. But yeah, she doesn't seem to be keen on the idea. But then she, when she seems to get great enjoyment with Harry's um, reaction to entering the TARDIS, and yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I do think there was a little bit of apprehension there. Um, but yeah, that didn't seem to last. No, no. <laughs> um, and then the. As they depart, the brigadier comes in, and that's the end of an era. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, it. Um, and I can see where people are coming from because I think a lot of people have basically said that this was really a John Pertwee story, but with Tom Baker being introduced. And I can kind of see where they're coming from because it's a unit-based story, much akin to you know the vast majority of what we saw when John Pertwee is the Doctor. And obviously that's here as a means of easing us from one doctor to the other. But I don't but it's not exactly a carbon copy because if you compare the the tone of the story is completely different to uh the John Pertwee era. Um certainly with C- series eleven, which was John Pertwee's final. Um if you look at the, the tone and the feel of that season and the, the stories that made it made it up. And the tone and feel of Robot, they're completely different. There's something a lot more lighter 
um, about robot. Um, it seems a bit more, I don't know, frothy, if that's the, if that's the right descriptive of it. But it, it, it comes across as it comes across as a bit more. It comes across as a bit more child-friendly, lighter, more enjoyable type adventure than than what we'd had before. And obviously, it, it certainly stands out for for because from this point on, Philip Hinchcliffe is the producer um, um, of the Tom Baker era until up to and including the talents of Wang Chiang. Um, and obviously, he takes the show in a much more uh, different direction. So, so in terms of the tone and feel, robot stands out quite a bit so it's i can see why people are saying it's sort of like a john Pope story but but i would say but not really not fully there's a there's a tone and feel uh completely unique to this this adventure yeah i think that's right yeah, yeah. um so i think um i don't think i've missed anything out uh, is there anything else you'd like to say that uh no i don't believe so <laughs> all right good good um so in terms of Conclusion and score. Uh, well, I did ask Twitter what they thought, right? Um, and of the votes we got, uh, they all said it was good. Oh, excellent! Um, and I'll say the same. Um, obviously, if I was to rate it out of ten, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not going to give it a rate out of ten. No, but hypothetically, if I did, uh, it. I might find better stories in this season. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm certainly not going to mark it as average just because there's better ones. Um, it's all, this is on the pedestal with the others. Uh, it's, it's a, it is a very good story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, uh, yes, I think season 12 does have better stories. I think the, the next one we're going to review is certainly in my opinion, uh, a better story and one of my all-time favourites. But nonetheless, yes, Robot's still a good story. Um, I do absolutely love it. Uh, I think it's very strong. I think it's very enjoyable. Yes, there are weaknesses there, which I think are mainly contained in episode three. But but even then, there are fantastic things that, that, that take place in that episode. And um, the, the yeah, it's it's good. I'd certainly recommend it. Uh, totally, yeah. Oh, we didn't mention the music, which was so good. Um, oh, yes, yeah. Specifically yeah. with the robot itself, which was, the robot was very sluggish and slow. Mm. And it was very, very powerful. But um, we had that, uh, that kind of beat that came along with, with uh, that bit of incidental music that came along with the robot. Um, mm-hmm. That was very identifiable with the, with the robot itself. Yeah, yeah, D- Dudley Simpson here does certainly provide a very good score. Uh, and there are, certain, there are certain bits which sort of cheekily reference um, some nursery rhymes. I think there's um, Pop Goes the Weasel, I think, is referenced in there. Maybe Humpty Dumpty. Could, no, not Humpty Dumpty. There's another one. But, uh, but yeah, the, the score's really good. It's atmospheric when it needs to be. And, yeah, that, I think the highlight for me is definitely that, that sort of that, that march that he gave the robot. Um, it does... Uh, it sort of matches the, the pace of the robot, but emphasizes its sort of strength so it does really emphasize and, and help with with the visuals so it is a very good piece of music so i think uh i've i've really enjoyed uh watching this actually and i've really enjoyed talking about it um so that's our our thoughts on robot yeah um we'd love to hear from you um if you'd like to get give some responses for our upcoming podcasts um 
before we get onto those, of course, just a quick reminder, we're on social, facebook.com slash cloisterbell, twitter at podcastbell, instagram cloister underscore bell, a few of our podcasts are on YouTube, and we have a great website, cloisterbellpodcast.com, and you can review us on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Yep, uh, fantastic, Rob, thanks very much, and um, I mean, I suppose... Uh, <laughs> Fans, Doctor Who will, will be familiar with uh, the next one we're going to be reviewing, but do you want to introduce that? Um, yes, uh, this was the first story in Season 12, and the subsequent stories which we will be reviewing are The Ark in Space, which will be next week, mm-hmm. The Santaran Experiment. After that, uh, we have previously talked about that on the podcast um, maybe a year and a half a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. but we're just going to go back and revisit it again um, with a fresh perspective. After that, we have Genesis of the Daleks and Revenge of the Cybermen. Uh, so, some very uh, good stories there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, with, uh, with you know the fantastic Tom Baker, the the heart of it all. So, really looking forward to. Um to reviewing those yeah so yeah get your responses in let us know what you think of those stories any fond memories uh, things like that we'd love to know yeah yeah uh, please do Um, but until then bye everyone goodbye Thank you.